0: 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you'll open your Bibles there, we're going to continue in our study through 2 Samuel. We have been going through uh, a series entitled Colliding Kingdoms, and we've been going through both the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. We've been going through this for almost a couple of years now, um, and um, just a few months left here in our study. And... The idea, and I'm going to just kind of get you caught up to speed, because um, if Second Service is any reflection of First Service, we've got, you know, several uh, new folks just joining us here at the First of the Year. Welcome, glad you're here. I want to get you, catch you up to speed on where we're at. So, Samuel, the books of First and Second Samuel, marks a huge transition in the nation of Israel, and it's going from the time of the Judges, now transitioning into the time of the Kings and the Prophets. And This is a time when the Bible says that everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And and so the issue at hand throughout this book really boils down to leadership. Um, It's been said that everything rises or falls on leadership, and that certainly is true. It's especially true in the kingdom of God in determining who we will follow. Uh, your walk as a man or woman of God, your works in this world, your family's well-being, all rises and falls on leadership. And the question that these books repeatedly confront is whose kingdom is going to rule? That's why we've called this study Colliding Kingdoms, because the question comes down, is it going to be you and your kingdom, or is it going to be God and His kingdom? Uh, Who are you going to serve? Who is going to rule your life? And as we watch the characters in these studies go through and wrestle with that question, we're making the correlation and just checking out how we often struggle with that same question. Who's going to rule in my life? Is it going to be me and my empire? Is it going to be me and my kingdom? Or is it going to be God and his kingdom? And it's a constant struggle. And so we see this being a constant struggle. Now, emphasizing this point the name of God is used over 450 times in the books of First and Second Samuel. Now, in the Hebrew, they, they use different words to talk about the different character aspects of God. And so we see different Hebrew words used to make up that over 450 number of, of the times that God is mentioned. But the Hebrew words, they all speak to different aspects of God's nature and His character, that He is Lord. That he is master, that he is absolute ruler. And really, all together, what it's speaking of is the omnipotence of God, that God is all powerful, that he is almighty, that he is all knowing. And and the, the name of God is mentioned so much in this book because God is the central figure, the central person at work behind the scenes. Yes. The stories revolve around guys like Eli and Samuel and Nathan and Saul and David. And we look at these men. We're going to be looking at David today. We're going to be looking at Nathan today. And the stories revolve around these men. But behind it all, the focus is the almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And the big problem face, facing the nation of Israel is that although God is almighty, although God is all-knowing, although God is all-powerful, the people aren't always regarding him in that way, Uh, which is ironic because their name is Israel, and the name of Israel as a people literally means ruled by God, And, and so they're that in name, but they're not that in practice so much, and so what happens is God raises up David. Who who is our hero. David is the king of the nation of Israel. He is a guy who the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, and God uses this man, who is a man after his own heart, who is himself ruled by God, uses him to lead the nation, everything rising or falling on leadership, and so now Israel, the nation that that you know, in name means ruled by God, they under David's leadership are now beginning to act in such a way that they are in fact ruled by God. And so we've been watching this transpire. And we've watched David's rise to power. We've watched the transformation of the nation of Israel. We've watched them start to have victories against their enemies and so on and so forth. But here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and actually backing up even into Second Samuel chapter 11, what we saw is that King David, a man who is ruled by God and leading the people to be ruled by God, has a monumental lapse of character and judgment. And David is not unlike so many people in that, you know, you have times in your life when you're walking with God and he starts doing this incredible work in your life and you begin to have spiritual victory in your life. And, 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 you know, things are just going great and you're, you know, you know those times when you're just on the spiritual mountain. And, and what happens so often is that we get into that place and we take our foot off the gas and we start to coast. And this is exactly what happened to David. And David got to the place to where, you know, everything's happened. God basically has blessed his socks off, blessed him abundantly. And now it's time for the nation of Israel to go back into battle, to go back into to, to warfare, to fight against their enemies. And so often it's that way with you and me. The battle is constant as a Christian. We live in a fallen world and we're, we're called to, to, to walk with God and to be engaged in this Christian fight. We don't we don't work or try to try, we don't we don't attain a right standing with God by the things that we do but having been saved and having been born again and having the hope of eternal life now the rest of your life there is a knockdown drag out fight between the forces of evil and the forces of God in our lives we've all experienced that and so we as Christians are called to fight the good fight of the faith and to you know Paul said that, that we're to, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. It's not work for our salvation, but we're to work it out. And like working out in, in any capacity, it's work, which is the reason why so many of us avoid it like the plague, except for January when we all sign up for a gymnasium and we go twice, uh, and then we stop going, right? And so as Christians we're called to work out our faith and so on. And so this is the way the battle is supposed to be. David and all the forces are supposed to go to war, but they David stays home, man. Takes his foot off the gas, begins to to just be there and and, and all. And and so what happens? Well, the Bible tells us that he's in at home, he's at his palace, he's just, you know. Spiritually speaking, eating bonbons on the couch kind of thing. He goes up onto the roof of his house, you know, and flat roofs there in Israel. And people, this is where their patios are and where they hang out and so on. And this is where David goes. He's taking a walk, notices his neighbor's wife next door. She's naked, and he begins to lust after her. And before you know it, he commits adultery with her. She winds up pregnant. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, which is one of his faithful you know, soldiers. I mean, this is the ultimate in betrayal. And so David's like, I got to cover this thing up. And when he takes steps to cover it up and it doesn't work, finally he results, resorts to, to having Uriah killed in battle. Murders him. And this is, this is the man after God's own heart. This is the catastrophic fa- failure that, that David has fallen into. And, and so now here he is in this place. What does God do with David? when he falls into this place? Well, he sends Nathan the prophet to him. And Nathan the prophet, he, he comes to call David on his sin, directed by God, and his words of rebuke have the desired effect. David repents of his sin. We'll pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 12, and this is after Nathan confronts him, and here's David's response, verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. See, the, 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 the law called for David and for Bathsheba, the, Uriah the, the Hittite's wife whom he committed adultery with, the law called for them both to be stoned to death. And yet here Nathan says, you won't die, you're not going to die. And the, 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 the fact is, this is where we left off last week, that our sin cannot be concealed, but it must be confessed. And when our sin is confessed, the Bible teaches that we are cleansed. We can be cleansed from all unrighteousness. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word all means something very specific. What's it mean? All means all. That's all all means. All unrighteousness. Isaiah the prophet said said this, he said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he, God, will abundantly pardon. And that word abundantly means many, much, multiple, exceedingly great. There is no sin that you have committed that God cannot forgive. Maybe this morning you come in here and you're weighed down, you're heavy laden, your heart is heavy, you're you're burdened by guilt. And Satan, he is not fair because he tempts you to sin. And on this side, you know, it's like, oh yeah, man, go do it. He's just, you know, the greatest politician, the greatest salesman. And then the moment you do it, he turns into your greatest accuser and condemner, jumps over in the other side of the fence. He's like, oh, you can't go to God now. You, you, you're a wicked, horrible loser. I can't believe you did that. And he condemns us and he accuses us. There's no sin that you've committed that cannot be forgiven by God. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Today, you can be cleansed. You can be set free. You can have your slate wiped clean. And that's why I've entitled the message today A New Beginning because you can have a new beginning in Christ Jesus. Have you confessed your sins? Well, this is exactly what we see here with David in 2 Samuel 13. He confesses his sin. And God immediately cleanses him and Nathan's reply is to say, hey, you know what, David? The Lord has also put away your sin. And we saw last week that word, that phrase put away, it literally means Passover. And it's the exact same word that we read in Exodus chapter 12 when God sent the angel of death to, to come down upon Egypt and he told all of his people, listen, the angel of death is coming and if you will sacrifice a lamb and you will put that blood on the doorpost of your home, then the angel of death will pass over your house and death will not come to your home. And it's a picture of Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain for our sins. And how, because as we place our faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sin, in our place, then death will pass over us as well. We are saved by grace through faith, it's not about our works, it's not about uh, my good works outweighing my bad works. It's not about me doing, some, doing enough good things that God says, "Great, I grade on a curve and you're getting in." No, it's about God paying a penalty that we could never afford to pay. In a thousand lifetimes, He's paid the penalty for our sin, and He offers you eternal life, if you will just confess, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I'm drowning out here, God. I just need you to save me. Some of you today, you need that. And I would tell you, listen, before we're done today, I'm going to give you an invitation to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can cry out to him. You can say, God, have mercy on me. And it's not that God's going to look at you and say, lightning bolt time and you haven't done enough. You haven't paid enough penance. You haven't, you know, white knuckled enough, you know, crawled on broken glass and groveled enough. No, God says today, if you will just cry out to me and say, God, have mercy on me. Forgive me, I'm a sinner. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. You can have a new beginning today. You can have a fresh start. You can have a do-over. Ever seen that movie, City Slickers? And the guy's talking about how he's ruined his life and he committed adultery on his wife and, and everything's horrible and he's just at the end of his rope and he's crying out in great despair and his friends remind him, oh, you remember, we used to play when we were kids, we used to, you know, play baseball and when we got a bad shot, we'd say, do over, you got a do over. And his response is like, look, I'm broke, my wife's gonna leave me, she's gonna take me for everything, Blood, you know, goes through his litany. He's like, how does that do over look now? Listen, your do over can be fantastic because God promises that in Christ Jesus, He casts your sin as far as the east is from the west. You can have a do over today. So Nathan says to him, Hey, God has put away your sin. However, he goes on to say in verse 14, Because by this deed you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. You're like, well, wait a minute, what about the do over? Oh God will cleanse you of your sin. He'll forgive you of all unrighteousness. He will give you a new beginning. But sometimes, listen, the idea is that there's consequences to our sin. Sin has a consequence. It always does. Satan tempts, he sells it, and sin is very attractive. And it is very pleasurable for a season. But the season is always too short and the bill is always, it's always too high. And what happens is that there's consequences for our sin. And the idea of our text here as we go through it is that David, in fact, indeed, is going to go through some consequences because of his sin. Listen, if you make the mistake to fall into sin, you will have to suffer consequences. But God... He's, we're going to see in his grace and his mercy, not only does he forgive and cleanse David and not, does he not get the death that he deserved, yes, he's got to go through some consequences, but we're going to see God use these consequences in David's life in such a way that, that God is going to get the glory and that God is going to work, even what Satan intended for evil, God's going to use for good. Romans 8.28 tells us that in all things, God works together for good to those that love him and who are the called according to his purposes. And so, some of you today, you're in a place where you have committed sin where you need to understand, okay, I can cry out to God, I can be forgiven of my sin, but some of you are in a place today where you're suffering through some consequences of your sin. And what I want you to understand and what we're going to focus on as we continue in this study is that, look, God will take you through your consequences, but don't, don't forsake him. Don't doubt him. Trust in him, even if he takes you through consequences, because he will work all things together for good in your life, even the working through of those consequences that may be unavoidable. And that's what what Nathan the prophet tells David here. He says, look, you're gonna go through some consequences and the child that that you've had shall surely die. Now, I want to put on the screen for you the amplified translation of verse 14. This is the, this is how this verse reads in the Hebrew. And so it's amplified. Here's how it reads. It's, this is what Nathan says. He says, the consequence for what you have done is because you overwhelmingly in arrogance disregarded the enemies of the Lord by this action that came forth from your thought through the word of deception that you embraced also, the son born to you will unequivocally die. Now, in Hebrew, that sentence structure, there are two what's known as infinitive absolutes that are included in that. And so, of course, you know what that means, right? And so we can just move on. No, here's what an infinitive absolute is. An infinitive absolute is an emphasis on a particular point in the text, Okay, and so what happens here is that God, speaking through the Holy Spirit, as this is penned in the Hebrew language, he basically takes the highlighter to a couple of sections of this verse to emphasize them. And so there's two of them. The first one is that he focuses on David's destructive witness. He says, "You over." Let's leave that up there. He says, "You overwhelmingly, in arrogance, disregarded enemies of the Lord." By this action that, that is uh, one of these infinitive absolutes, in other words, listen, David disregarded how his actions would reflect on the lord that 's the idea. He, he, he disregarded how his arrogant actions would reflect on the Lord and how they would adversely affect the people that that, that don 't believe the enemies of God. see. God takes very seriously how you and I represent him. We live in a day and an age when people misrepresent God all the time. Maybe you've got coworkers. maybe you've got friends, maybe you've had occasion to read some of the comment section on some of the news articles. I always go to the comment section, it's the most entertaining thing about any news article is to read what people are saying, but it is really disheartening because what happens is as you read through it, inevitably, whatever the news article is about, it goes to two things, religion and politics. And what stands out is that people rail against God. We live in a day and age, and when I was a kid, even people who didn't believe in God generally respected God. Generally respected Christians. Today? No, no, they don't. And sadly, for a lot of reasons, they don't respect Christians because we haven't given them anything to respect. We've misrepresented God in the way we live. Now, Christians, to coin a corny bumper sticker, aren't perfect. We're just forgiven. And that's certainly true. We aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. But some people live their life with a total disconnect. And it's so I live like hell, and I talk like heaven, and I think that, oh, everything's, you know, and the world, the unbelieving world sits back, and they're like, what on earth? I, you know, I I quoted the quote, see if I can get it off the top of my head, a few weeks ago, that... that um, you know, one of the, the single greatest um, things in the world that, uh, oh gosh, let me see, the, uh, see, single greatest thing in the world that causes people to, to deny the Lord is Christians who, who, who profess Jesus with their mouth and then they go out and they, they betray him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And, and you know, and so the, the thing is, is that this first infinitive absolute says, look, David, you, you absolutely, arrogantly disregarded the enemies of the Lord by your actions, and it adversely affected them. God takes very seriously how you and I represent him. We see this in scripture, Moses. They're in, in Numbers chapter 20. God told him as he's leading the Israelites out of, uh, out of Egypt into the promised land. And now all the Israelites are bellyaching and complaining. They're like, oh, we're thirsty. What? Well, you know, there wasn't enough, you know, dead people that, you know, you had to bring us out here to die. We couldn't have just died in Egypt, whatever. And so Moses is like, God, they're crying out for water. What do you want me to do? And God tells him, hey, take your rod, and I want you to go speak to the rock, and I'll provide water. And so Moses goes, now, prior to this, in, in Exodus chapter 17, they had had a previous experience where they needed water, and they cried out to Moses, we want water, we want water. And God, and Moses went to God, said, hey, we need water. And God told him on that occasion, take your rod and strike the rock. And and what God was doing was he was providing a picture of Jesus Christ, who would be stricken for sin, and and we see that picture on, on on Jesus on the cross, how they thrust the spear, Roman soldiers thrust his spear into the side, and out flows blood and water, and it was a picture of Christ. Well, so the second time around, he you know the the, the Moses goes to God, he's like, hey, they want they want some to drink again, God. He's like, okay, Moses, look, take your take your rod, and at this point, Moses went full on guy okay? My wife and I went down to the the store the other day, and she was picking up a a hair product from a friend of hers. And she told me before I went in, hey, look, she's got it for you, and you just got to go get it. Just ask her for it. And and I just, I thought I listened to her. I really did. And I I messed it up when I went in there. You know, I came out. She's like, you're killing me. I told you this, you know? Well, Moses does the same thing. God's telling him, hey, take the rod, go, you know, Speak to the rod, but or speak to the ro- to the rock. But Moses, he's like, "Oh, I got it. I've been here before. Take my rod. I'm gonna go hit the rock." So he goes and he strikes the rock twice, and God's like, "You just messed up the picture that I wanted because Christ was stricken once for sin, and now he doesn't be he doesn't have to die to sin anymore. He's paid the penalty. It is finished." To die is what he cried out on the cross. It is finished. The work of redemption for our sins is done. Now, for you to go to God, you just speak to the rock. The rock doesn't need to be stricken anymore. And he's like, Moses, you misrepresented me to the people. And so for that, you're not going to go into the promised land. So for us, we need to understand how we represent God is very, very important. Important. And, and just as a lesser point of the lesson today, have you write down, maybe take a walk with how do you represent God? How do you represent God in your conduct? How do you represent God in your character? How do you represent God in your conversations? How do you represent God in your choices? Seriously, I, I, would, ta- I would write that down, take a walk with that this week. How, how am I representing God? And I wouldn't just answer it, I would say, God, let me ask you that question. How do I represent you? How do I represent you in how I drive? I, mean, I know people, and I was included. and in I wouldn't put a Reliance bumper sticker on my wife's car because that was the past car. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't want to rep- misrepresent him, so I won't put a bu- bumper sticker on. You know, hey, here's the thought, Pastor Ted. Why don't you just put the bumper sticker on and represent? You know, how, so so just take a. How do you represent God? Now, there's a second infinitive absolute. This is what I want to focus in on the remainder of the message. It's it's critically important for us. Here it is. You see it in verse 14. It focuses on the destructive consequence of David's sin. He says, The son born to you will unequivocally die. In other words, take it to the bank. It's happening. And so we read, verse 15, then Nathan departed to his house. He says, look, here, here, take it to the bank. The son that's born to you is going to die. Now, in, in the New King James, it says the child who was born to you, but it's in a masculine form, and he says son further down, so we know it's a son who died. But he says, look, the, the, the son that's born to you is surely going to die. And then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. And I want you to see that. The Lord struck the child. This is God's doing. The Lord struck the child, the wife, that Uriah's wife, and the the Bible doesn't just randomly say that. The Bible's saying this is Uriah's wife because David hooked up with her when she was Uriah's wife, and so the child that she's carrying is David's child, but she being Uriah's wife when all of this went down, the Lord struck that child, it became ill. Verse 16, David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And so the elders of his house arose, and they went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, and nor did he eat food with them. And then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. And when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. And therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is. Is dead. Now, let me just be candid with you that something just doesn't seem right about this. Right? I mean, maybe you felt the same way. You're reading this and you hear that God killed this child, and you're like, what did the child do? I mean, he's innocent. What's all this about a loving God? What's all this about a righteous God? And, and you know, the guy that should have died lives. Oh, you're not going to die. And then this innocent baby dies. What is up with that? It just does not seem right. It doesn't seem fair. Does it seem fair to you? Yeah, this ain't fair. Aren't you grateful that God's not fair in the way that you and I understand fairness? Listen, we're like David in the sense that God says to you and me, you're not going to die. And yet what happens? God's son died. Jesus died in your place. That is not fair. It's not fair that that happened. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel in one sentence. The Bible says that every last one of y'all, and me too, and everyone else in the world, every single one of us is a sinner by nature and by choice. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, if you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is not fair because you deserve death. You deserve hell. And God gives you none of it. He delivers you. Now, you go, okay, that's fine. Picture of God's son. But how do I still reconcile that God killed this innocent baby? That's still hard for me to get my head around. I mean, how, how is he a good God and he does this? Well, there's several things to help us understand God striking David's son. There's several aspects of this that we got we to think through. One, first of all, if you're thinking in the mindset of, look, David David gets off scot-free, where's his punishment? Hey, can I just tell you, I mean, most of us here are parents. Well, what is David and Bathsheba got? The worst punishment possible. I mean, they would have traded places in a second with this kid. So you speak in terms of punishment, they got the most painful consequence of their sin imaginable. God took this child. I mean, and by the way, there's a strong lesson there. We just need to take a walk with that lesson. And here's the lesson that sin is costly. It costs. There is always a price for sin and it always is too high and too costly. I'm teaching at the Bible College. I'm teaching a homiletics class. So homiletics is the, the art and science of preaching. Teaching kids how to preach the gospel. and uh, And so the final exam is they got to preach their own message in front of the class. And uh, all their peers get to judge them, get to, ju- get to grade them. Uh, I get to grade them and, you know, and all, it's, it's, it's fun. And um, so there's, so I, I got, I got this class, you know, you know, 30 something, you know, kids in my class. And there's this one kid in the, he's a kid, but I mean, he's like, he's like in his late 20s. Most of my class is like 18, 19 years old, you know. But this, this one guy in there, he's, he's, you know, probably close to 30 years old. And he, in the course of sharing his message, he's, he's sharing his own personal testimony. He's, he's woven into the message. And, um, and in the context of his message, as he shares his personal testimony, he, he shares how his mom and dad divorced, and as you know, sometimes when you're trying to tell a story, words just don't do it justice. This is one of those times. As this kid is sharing, I have this, this conscious thought, and I'm blown away by the fact I'm going, wow, this guy's almost 30 years old, and this event back from his childhood has so damaged him, so wounded him. It's profound. What is it? It's a consequence of sin, and our sin always has consequences. And so here is just this, um, this in, such an incredible consequence. God struck the child. Hey, David needed to understand that there are consequences to sin. It's a fact of life. It's a reality. Sin, in its very nature is unsettling sin in its very nature is damaging jesus told adam and eve in the day you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will surely die that's what sin brings is death and destruction which which helps us by the way understand another reason why god struck this child and it's just related to this listen the death of a child is tragic but for a king who forsakes the Lord, it can destroy an entire nation. For, for we've seen it with our own nation, a president and a, and a congress and a senate that denies the Lord can damage an innumerable number of children. Almost 58 million children dead since Roe versus Wade became the law of the land. And so a king or any government ruler that forsakes the Lord can bring lots of death and destruction. And God's trying to get to David's heart because he is the king of a nation. And so in God's economy, if he allows the death of this child, and not just allows it, I mean, he causes the death of this child. But if he does so, in order to save an entire nation, well, God knows what he's doing. See, God's doing everything that he can to turn the heart of David back to himself. And indeed, David does turn back. We read and we see David's crying out to the Lord. He's fasting, he's praying, he's pressing in. He's like, God, please, save my child. I mean, if, you know, it goes without saying, but had David spent as much time fasting and praying before he decided to stay home from the battle? And before he decided to get entangled with Uriah's wife, he wouldn't have spent this time fasting and praying after the fact. But that's where he's at. And so God says, look, you know, the the, the kid's going to die. And David now pressing into God, seeking God, praying to God, please God. But listen, I want you to notice, even when God doesn't answer him in the way that he hoped, David accepted God's will. And that's a critically important point. Look at verse 18. His, his servants are freaking out. They're like, how are we going to tell him that his son just died? He's been, he's been inconsolable. And now we're going to go drop this bomb on him. They, and they say, he may do some harm. Some of your translations read that in a different way. Some go out, out just to like he's going to do some harm to himself. Now, the Hebrew doesn't read that way. In the Hebrew, it says, he may do some evil. And it's assumed that they're talking about he might hurt himself. And that well could be. But here's what it also could be. And we see this a lot. That when you're in a situation where you're begging God for something, you're like, God, please... Don't kill this thing. It might be a person. Oh, this person's sick. Please heal them. Or it might be a job or it could be a, you know, a, a dream of yours. And God lets something die. And you're begging him. You're like, please, God, don't, don't do this. And then God is God and does what God's going to do. And how often do we respond in that situation and we get mad at God? And we rage against God, and we say, in a, in a sense, it sounds foolish to say it, but how dare you not answer my prayer? Anybody could see that this was a, a prayer you should have answered. I prayed you to heal my kid, and he, you kill him? And so often, and you know people who've turned away from God completely, because God has not done what they have asked him to do. And they're like, you know what? How can I worship you? How can I trust you as a good God when you would do, how could a good God allow this? And so God, maybe in your life, let something die. Maybe in your life, you know, you've had to deal with that. A loss of a dream or a relationship or a job or a loved one or whatever it was and And I would ask you, how did you respond? Or how will you respond? See, because God's doing a work in David's heart here. And what what I want you to see is the work that God is doing in David's heart is having an effect. David cries out, heal this kid. And he doesn't heal the kid. And so then what happens, the servants see this. And they're like, how are we going to tell him this? He might do some sort of evil. Verse 20, so David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and he changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. Circle that word, worship. We'll come right back to that. He worshiped, and then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And you're like, Well, okay, that's weird. Verse 21, And then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and you wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and you ate food? The the, the translation here, they're coming to him, they're like, What's wrong with you? What, What is, we don't get this at all. Like, you're totally inconsolable, and then you find out the worst possible news, and then you're like, Oh, now I'll go take a shower, bring me something to eat. They're like, we don't get that. That doesn't make sense. Now listen to his response. He says, and he, while the ch- he, uh, um, and, and he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And you read that, and it re- here's the way it reads. Here's the way it comes across. It comes across like David's a big fake and phony, doesn't it? That he, There he is, he's weeping, he's crying, he's seeking the Lord, and then they're like, oh, hey, you know, uh, the kid died. And he's like, well, that didn't work. Give me something to eat. I mean, that's, that's the way it comes across to me, except for that word that I had you circle, the word worshiped because what that word indicates that word worshiped it, it it means the very opposite of of this sort of fake and phony exterior religion no what that word worshiped means it speaks of what happens deep within his heart it talks about how he's he's uh got this thing from deep within his heart and in his soul. In fact, you could just write that next to that circled word worship. You could write from deep within his heart and deep within his soul. This What is this saying? This is saying that David's heart is completely surrendered and yielded to God. And when he was fasting and when he was praying and then when he got the worst possible news, David was in the place where he said, God, I'm yours. I'm totally yielded to you. I'm totally surrendered to you. Listen, God, I'm going to accept what, you, what, you, what you've dictated is to happen in my life. Now, this is the place that we have to be, and this is the place that God wants us to get to in our life, and sometimes it just has to come through chastening. Sometimes it just has to come through letting God bring you through whatever train wreck you've made of your life and acknowledging him in the process no matter which way it goes down. David's in that place where he's just completely surrendered to you, to the Lord. Okay, God, I, I give it over to you. I'm completely surrendered. Completely yours and and he says something here which also kind of helps us to understand God in this regard because he says, Now he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Here it is: I shall not go to him, but he or I'm sorry, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. now, what is David talking about here? Well, we get an idea when he says, look i'm going to go to him. Where did David believed that he was going to go to. Well, thankfully, we have scriptures that tell us from David's heart, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, where he, in, where he knew he was going. And so we have David's testimony, and we have the testimony of God's unfailing word, which every word is true, telling us that David's earnest expectation is that he's going to heaven. Psalm 16 Put on the screen for you, David's words. He says, Lord, you alone are my inheritance, my cup of blessing. You guard all that is mine. I know that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forevermore. The child's in glory. David says, I'm going to heaven. And the child's there. You know what? He can't come back to me. But I will go to him. Incredible comfort that is available to you and to me. Especially for those who have lost children. To know that the Bible teaches and it makes it very clear here that this child is in heaven. And we don't understand all of the, ins- the, 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 the details, we don't understand at what age it is that a person reaches that so-called age of accountability, but we know that there is at some point, a point in time where a person reaches an age of accountability. For, for a Jewish boy, it was 13 years old when he would have his bar mitzvah. That was the day he became a man. That was the day he became accountable to himself, for himself. But in the economy of God, when a child dies, the scripture teaches that they go to heaven. For those that have lost children, this is incredibly comforting. Listen, for those who have had an abortion, this is incredibly comforting. Because you may have made a decision that was sinful that caused the death of a child. David made a decision that was sinful that caused the death of a child. And God says, I will take this child and I'll bring this child to me. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the Bible says that in his presence is fullness of joy. And so yeah, God killed this child. And we see all the ways that God is using it. As we close, I want to draw your attention back to verse 20. Because there we read, David arose from the ground and he washed and anointed himself and he changed his clothes. Listen, in Old Old Testament scripture, washing yourself and changing your clothes, it symbolizes a new beginning. We see in Genesis chapter 41, Joseph, he's in prison, he's languishing there. And Pharaoh calls him out, he's going to interpret a dream. And it's a, and it, it is a, it's a new beginning for Joseph. And what does he do? He washes himself, he changes his clothes. Genesis chapter 45, Joseph now, he's made the number two man in all of Egypt. God has strategically placed him there for such a time as this. And God is doing this incredible work. And Joseph now is going to call for his family to bring them to Egypt, to himself, to save them from the famine that is in the land. And what does he do? He sends them a change of clothes for this new beginning in their life. Exodus chapter 19, God is going to talk to Moses. He's brought the nation of Israel out of bondage from Egypt and they're now going through the wilderness and God is about to give to them the Ten Commandments and give to them the instructions for how they are to walk in this new life, how they are to go in, in this new beginning that he's given to them. And, and what happens is he instructs Moses, tell the people to wash Change their clothes. symbolizes a new beginning. We see it in Genesis 35. We see it in Leviticus 14. We see it in Revelation chapter 3. And that's what we see now. Verse 24, or verse 23 says, or I'm sorry, verse 20 says, he arose, he washed, he anointed himself, and he's gonna walk in newness of life. We see it, verse 24, it says, then David comforted Bathsheba his wife. Scripture calls her now his wife, not Uriah's wife. He comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and he went into her and he lay with her. And so she bore him a son and he called his name Solomon. And now the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. And so he called his name Jedediah, because of the Lord. Solomon names his, or, uh, David names his son Solomon. It means peace, by the way. You know, Brenda and I, we, three kids, you know, and, and, and when you're raising your kids and they have those seasons of disobedience, you, you know them, right? You know the day you wake up, you're like, they're due. Today's the day, right? This one's getting a tune-up today, right? And, and what happens is when the child the child in question, Caitlin, gets a tune-up, Their attitude changes. It's almost as if the kids are grateful for the discipline. They wouldn't tell you that they are, but there is a peace that prevails in that child's spirit when they're broken. And this is what David says with Solomon. He says, peace. Not only that, but the Lord loved him, verse 24. And he sends Nathan the prophet. And, you know, David's got to be, Nathan shows up. He's like, oh, last time you were here, it was bad news. Here, my, now my son's born again. What, are you going to tell me this kid's going to die too? And Nathan shows up. He says, no, no, no. We're going to, God also has a name for this, for this kid. You call him Peace. God wants to call him Jedediah. Jedediah, it means loved of the Lord. This child is loved of the Lord. Now, there is enough grace in these verses that I've just read to make even the least legalistic person here go, that's not right. Because you read this and you're like, wait, wait, Pastor Ted, do you mean to tell me That God is blessing this marriage. This guy took this man's wife, killed her husband, and now God's showing up and he's like, oh, your kid is loved to the Lord. She's your wife. What? Do you mean to tell me that God's blessing this marriage? No, I don't mean to tell you that God's blessing this marriage. God's telling us that he blessed this marriage. And you're like, how do I make sense of that? Grace, mercy, and it's, it's, it's just the craziest thing. It's a new beginning. David confessed his sin to the Lord. God gave him consequences for his sin. He endured through those with a heart that just said, God, I love you. I'll accept whatever comes from your hand. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. And now God says, okay, I will. Turn to Psalm 103. I said in closing, I'm absolutely closing on this verse, or on this psalm. If you hear this story, and you go, all right, so God's cool. I can covet my neighbor's wife, and I can kill him, and go grab her, and, you know, God will, you know, he'll get over it and I'll get by with it. Then you miss the point entirely. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. By the way, it's a praise for the Lord's mercies. We read in the introduction to it, it's a Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all of your iniquities, who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Verse 9, hear it. He will not always strive with us and nor will he keep his anger forever. He's not dealt with us according to our sins nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Listen, I have no doubt that there are many in need to hear this. We think of the gospel in terms of, oh, I'm, I'm saved according to the gospel. The gospel is all about me going from darkness to light, to, from, from, from death to life. And it's true. It is true in that way. But listen, the gospel is for every single day. The gospel is for when you blow it, when you fall, when you do something you thought you would never do. And you're ashamed of yourself. The gospel's for you. The gospel says that God won't always strive with mankind, but there is a place where he's going to be merciful, he's going to be gracious, he's going to forgive. And the key, the key is confession, repentance, and a heart that says, God, I just want you. I'll accept whatever, whatever it is you want to do, God. I'll accept whatever it is you want to do. It's been said that the tragedy of life is not that it ends so soon, but that we wait so long to begin it.